that's the impact of it is like I am darkness now I have absorbed the, his darkness and it's in me now and that means I'm bad so it must have been my fault Welcome to episode four of Why Didn't You? This week we'll be hearing the testimony of writer, psychotherapist and author Mia Doring. Mia wrote Any Girl and let me tell you, I read this the other night, one of you helpfully DM'd me and said that you thought I'd love this book and that person I owe um, at least a big drink to and probably a cuddle because I absolutely loved this book and immediately um, semi-psychotically DM'd Mia on Twitter to beg her to come and speak to us today because she uh, is an incredible woman and activist and survivor and her book and her story overall really does exactly what this podcast was first set up to do which is challenge those why didn't you questions that so many of you listening have faced really take on those rape myths that are unfortunately stitched into pretty much every part of our society at the moment Um, and we're going to get into loads of them today so welcome Mia thank you for joining us thanks for inviting me and for your psychotic dm I didn't think it was psychotic I thought it was very lovely. <laughs> oh, that's good. Sometimes I use too many exclamation marks when I'm get dead excited about somebody or something they've written. I always try and measure if I'm coming across as I appreciate your work or I'm in a bush outside your house and I appreciate your work. So I'm glad it was the former um, and not the latter. Now, I want to start by talking about your book because it is incredible as a testimony in and of itself, but also... It's um, the way it engages with the bigger issues around male violence within society. I mean, there's this one line from the book, and and anybody who goes away and reads this book after this, and I hope it's lots of you, is there's a line which says, violence from men is the water in which women and girls unconsciously swim. And that's kind of a, a... a theme of the book in many respects in that it, it really details and reveals the ways in which all of our lives as women are impacted by male violence. Um, so talk to me about, about writing the book, because I know you were an activist and, as we know, you are a psychotherapist, but your story wasn't kind of out there, right? You were not anonymous, but you you weren't telling your own story as part of your work at that point. I wrote a blog. That That's really where, what happened. The Secret Diary of a Dublin Call Girl, because I was so angry with your one belle du jour and her Secret Diary of a London Call, whatever it was. And um, I was like, fuck that. So I, I wrote my own blog and it blew up. And that was very frightening. Like this was young ago. This was like 2012. Um, it was really, I was nearly not even leaving the house because it was so, so popular and being, you know, spread around the place and being talked about. Um, and then I was going to write a book. I did write a book really quick in like six months. Then I wrote another version of it in 2015. This story does end soon. Um, it was more of a journalistic kind of a book, I suppose. I'd done my master's in journalism and I was like wanting to not be so vulnerable, you know, I suppose. So I wrote that. That didn't feel right either. Ugh, even though that was going to be, you know, 
my own name and whatnot, but I was trying to do too much with the book. Um, and I was really trying to stay away from the story as much as I could. Um, yeah. So then um, that was 2015. Then I wrote a novel, which I'm still working on. Um, kind of like a modern telling, modern, like a modern telling of what happens to me, you know, sort of, but obviously totally fiction. Um, then I got some feedback from a couple of different publishers, really good feedback. So I was like, great, okay, I'll work on this. So took a break from it, got the feedback. This was like late 2018. Obviously I had life going on as well. So this is why everything takes well. And I sat down to work and I just felt this horrific feeling of like doom and like, oh no, this isn't going to cut it. You know, you got to write your own story. So then in late 2018, early 2019, I started this memoir. And then a year later, I finished it. You write really well about the considerations that you have to take kind of into account when you are going to go public with your story. And, and as you've kind of alluded to there, it's it's a story of a life of sexual violence so far and exploitation um, from a, a teenage rape to sex work and the exploitation inbuilt and inherent in that sex work and and you write this list of questions which which really resonated with me you know which where you're saying do I write this or not do I have to hurt the people I love do I have to sacrifice so much will anything I write after this be taken seriously and you know we'll, we'll get much more into why women don't talk about this publicly but you really crystallize the risks that are present in going public how heavily did they they weigh on you and how difficult a a decision was it even though you knew kind of instinctively that your story had to be told oh it was like back and forth all the time in my head I spent all of 2015 I think every day thinking do I do this? Do I not do this? Every single day, every single day trying to figure it out. That was, and that was 2015. Yeah. And it was a really long process of, it's really weird. And I know COVID as well kind of fucked up everybody's sense of time, but like, it's really hard. It's like a big blur. When I think back at that time, talking to my friend Rena about it, like we take the dogs out and I'd just be, what will I do? Will I do this? Will I not do this? What will I do? How will my parents take it? What about to randomize left with? Like, when I was 18, is he going to pop up with saying something gross with me on? Do you know what I mean? Stuff like that. Just anything. Well, my parents disown me, you know. Well, it wasn't even about my parents. I knew they wouldn't disown me. But it was like, will their friends be dickheads to them? Do you know what I mean? Because they're old and, you know, whatever. You know, like all that kind of stuff was going through my mind. And I had to come to a space of stillness inside me and bring like bring it all the way back like this was all like a kite in the air, you know, and I had to come back to the very bottom of the handle <laughs> to be like, I, it feels right for me to write this book. And I have to trust that before trying to figure out the endings for everybody else in my life. Do you know what I mean? And come back to what do I want? I can handle the shit that will come my way. I can handle all that. And I, it, even if I can't, like it feels right for me to do this. So I knew it. I was determined about it. But at the same time, every now and then I'd have like a, a few days of like, what am I doing? But nobody knew I was writing this book. You know what I mean? A couple of friends knew that was it. Like, so there was no like testing it out to see. Yeah, it took ages. But I kind of, you know, like I already said, I kind of knew from that day in whatever, 2018 or early 2019, I can't remember. Um, I knew I'd do it anyway. 
Even when I was writing my novel, I knew I would eventually go public. You know, these people demand, people often in our culture demand that women speak out about their experiences. But then when we do, they kind of hold them up to the standard of what those stories should sound and look like. Was there a a sense of that in the response of people judging the kind of victim, quote unquote, that you were? Not anybody in my life. I mean, and if they did, they didn't share it with me. Um, I mean, I'm sure certain people in my life will 100% uh, judge me. But mostly all the judgments all come from one terrible reviewer of the book and the rest are like online trolls and stuff like that, you know. Nothing that actually affects me in my actual life of people judging me. You know what I do notice though, like subtle things, right? So people will read, people I know in my life, people will read the book and then not say anything about it. And I know that's not really what you're asking about, but it's, it's not judging me or anything, but it's real weird. To, it's like I just said what happened to me into the air and, and they just walked away after. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like that. I'm like, could you say that you finished it and that you thought it was good or just say, well done on writing a book? Like literally acknowledge it is what's needed because it is replicates the same silence that you're kind of trying to get out of, you know, like there's two of my brothers in law have not mentioned my book to me and will not ever mention my book to me. One of them I've known since I was seven years old, right? He's, he will not say it to me and he will not say, oh, I heard about your book, congratulations, or I saw the cover is beautiful, nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, just acknowledge the fucking thing. You don't have to get into what happened. You don't have to become a psychotherapist and listen to me talking about it. Just fucking acknowledge the thing and say, I saw the, the cover is beautiful. Or if I end up on TV, were they nice people that were interviewed? You know, you don't have to get into like the mess of it all. I'm, I can hold that, but you fucking hold yourself. You know what I mean? And to be generous, like, and I found that because that doesn't translate to me. And I know it's simply, these are grown adult men, right? Grown ups in there way older than me. Right. And I, I know on one level, I'm like, oh, they're deeply uncomfortable with the subject matter or they're not able to, they're, you know, they got all their own shit their own shame and stuff that they're they don't want to feel you know that coming up for them and this whatever and um, but I'm like sort yourselves out like you're not the star of the show here like why should I have to accommodate your comfort when I'm the victim in this this book isn't about you it doesn't mention you it's not about you at all so what's wrong with you <laughs> that you can't say like congratulations on your best-selling book like, I hope it's all, how's it all going? Like, you don't have to be like, so tell me about the rape. Do you know what I mean? But like, fucking acknowledge the thing. Do the opposite of what the culture tells us to do. The culture tells us to be quiet and not say anything. And then you're replicating that and you're in my fucking life. Like, that, that's what I, I think that's cruel, actually. And I don't understand it. No, and I, I had um, not dissimilar. And I was, and I was like, oh, is it because they're awkward and they don't know what to say? And then there was definitely a sense of there was a bit of not all men going on, which is I don't want to read this and have to read a reality where a lot of men, most men in my life have been abusive. They didn't want to engage with that reality because that would cause them to ask questions about themselves and their own, and, you know, being a man generally but it it pissed me off that they saw it as an attack on them as opposed to my reality and that yeah. as a man they could have said I'm really sorry for what happened yeah I'm really sorry for what happened to you it's not about you <laughs> 
Like it's about you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like just that simple acknowledgement of going, I'm really sorry that happened to you and like fair fucks to you writing a book. Done. Acknowledged. Shame. Gone. <laughs> but no. So that's yeah. And it's, the sh- and it's the shame. It's shaming. It's shaming you by not acknowledging it. It's sending the very explicit message. I don't want to know about that. And that's shaming. It's their shame, but still they're projecting it at you. And I, I also think when it comes to uh, you are brilliant and, in my opinion, entirely fucking correct on sex work and exploitation um, and, you know, the sense of what is consent within that structure. Um, and I think that the difficulty for normal men is they have to accept that paying for sex is wrong and is exploitation and isn't consensual, truly isn't consensual. And for any man who has it ever paid for sex or even considered paying for sex and sees that as something that's kind of okay, that I think that challenges their worldview, yeah. surely, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, even like this is me speculating here, but like, my sense of things is like there's most men don't pay for sex. Like here in Ireland, it's one in 15, which is still an outrageous number. But most men, the other 14 don't. I mean, okay, the other 14 probably watch porn, whatever. But um, it's like we're by, advoca- by advocating for the Nordic model, which criminalizes the purchase of sex, which we have in Ireland now. This is just my sense of things, you know. It's like taking a right away from them that they might someday or that they want their other men folk <laughs> to have the right to, you know what I mean? It's like, oh no, you don't get to take that away from me. Um, that's the feeling I get around it. But I mean, I'm just, these are just my own thoughts. You're brilliant on identifying the entitlement that's at the heart of whether it's a, a, a rape, I'm going to use the phrase rape, rape, which is a terrible phrase and it's in inverted commas, but everybody who's listening to this knows exactly what I mean. And porn and sex work they the thing that stitches them together is male entitlement to female bodies for their own pleasure yeah do you get these people going oh sex work is work and and then at the same time saying catcalling is bad and it's objectifying and you're not allowed to do that but you can pay a woman to have sex with you can pay a woman to say yes to sex with you and you can use porn that's fine but don't catcall women like what like either sexual entitlement is okay or it's not okay Either objectifying woman is okay or it's not okay. Because either it's a value or it's not a value. Do you know what I mean? You don't get to be all like grey about us here. Like it's not it's not really a grey thing. Like it's not. Well, let's and let's talk about some of of your experiences that are in the book. And, and I actually want to ask you firstly about a, a decision you made editorially, which I thought was genius, really, which was to hold back. Your the very first, I suppose, explicit um, experience of sexual violence when you were raped when you were sixteen. That is held back toward until towards the end of the book, which completely subverts the way we think about these things. Which is this thing happened, and therefore these bad things happened. Can you talk about the decision to do that and, and what you were trying to do with it? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of an instinct. It, that that first, very first chapter in the very first version of the book that I wrote in 2012, um, that's how it was 
I think. But the first chapter, the the last one it's called, that was oh, that was at the front, and that felt just right to me to put the last person. Well, it was dramatic, and you know, it was you know, kind of compulsive read or whatever. But I wasn't really being strategic in that kind of way. It was more like I was a. Uh, it just felt right to go plunk. Here's here's what happened to me, and then plunk, 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 and then I, I kind of thought like I don't like the idea of. It just didn't sit right. It felt like dead energy to tell a story this, this, this chronologically, you know, but also it mirrors the whole process of trauma is very not chronologically correct. You know, so you remember bits and bobs and you're like, oh, what car was I driving when that happened? And what color was my hair when that happened? You know, because I remember moments when I had blonde hair. I'm like, oh, I have blonde hair. So then I must have been around that age. Okay. And I was living in that house when that happened, you know, and you kind of piece it together. So I kind of, that was also like an, an instinct, I suppose, to have it kind of not scattered because it isn't scattered, but to have it told in a certain way where I didn't want the reader either to go, oh, it's because she was raped. You know what I mean? I wanted it to be an unfurling of the information. Not, not explicitly told I was raped and that meant that I was vulnerable to the guy and that meant I was vulnerable to blah, blah. And now I've recovered. You know, I didn't want to do it like that. And that was kind of it, but it was an artistic choice, I think, more than um a stress strategic one and then the comfort women chapter about the i don't know where to put that i just plonked that in the middle um that's kind of about society and calling prostitution sex work and um whatever like all the different defenses we have of prostitution um and other things i really can't remember um <laughs> fully what's in it but yeah i was like what are we going to put that one so i just put it in the middle as a bit of a like a I don't know. But just, I have to say, as a reader, and I did mean more of a choice artistically than strategically in terms of it's ra- it's radical for me to tell your story and to be so open about, especially about a whole thing on grooming, which we're going to get into, and on sex work and the exploitation of that, and then to present the 16-year-old girl who was brutalised you know, normally you show that to then, oh, you've gained their sympathy. So now they'll be more understanding about what comes after. They'll see it within a context. And you flipping that and and saying, no, no you're just going to, I'm a woman who deserves empathy and understanding regardless. I don't have to justify it by being brutal. I just thought that was so powerful and 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 in and of itself, that decision tackles so many of those myths around who is victimised, how they're victimised, and as you say, then how trauma works, because it absolutely isn't linear. That first experience, we're going to call him Peter, which uh, isn't his, his real name. You were uh, both teenagers, and even though you write about how it was black and white in terms of it, it being, I suppose, more of a textbook version of rape, that even then, as a 16-year-old girl, you kind of wished it had been more violent, more dramatic, there'd been more injuries, there'd been... Because even then, you seem to know that society demanded more of you and you say, oh, you know, mine wasn't a clear-cut stranger rape. Were you aware? I suppose it's it's how much are you ever are aware, consciously or unconsciously, but there being a set of almost rules that you had to adhere to or, or, or at least preferred kind of attributes as somebody who'd been raped. You know, I, yeah, I was 16. We didn't really have the internet. 
Um, well, we did, but that was it. I had my first email address when I was 16, so it was around then. Um, and that was because we got taught how to do that in computer class in school, you know. Um, I sound like I'm some sort of relic. It wasn't that long ago. <laughs> oh, but same for me and everything had like, it. mine was like Terry something. It had loads of numbers in it. It had like my mate's name yeah, in it. Yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. And it was Hotmail, yeah, obviously. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. um, but my awareness of rape, it was like nothing, you know. It was like whatever I absorbed through films or tv shows or news stuff if i overheard something because i wouldn't be sitting down to watch the nine o'clock news um it, it was through that that i would have absorbed this message which was very strong for me to have picked that up without even reading up anything or talking about it with anybody that i already knew like i think it's like nearly intrinsic that one girl I work with was raped and she was describing it as feeling like she was darkness now, do you know? And that's the impact of it is like, I am darkness now. I have absorbed the, his darkness and it's in me now. And that means I'm bad. So it must have been my fault. You know, it's kind of like that as well as all the cultural conditioning. Um, But in what you were saying about... um. Yeah, the hospital thing, well, the hospital thing that I say about like, oh, I wish there was a hospital stay and I had more injuries or whatever, um, that I really wanted that because then I would have known, oh, that was bad. You know, I would have had visible proof as opposed to just my own feelings and thoughts, which I didn't trust at all. Anyway, so it was much easier when you're in pain to minimize it and go, oh, I didn't really mean it. And he was only a teenager and we're both drunk. And maybe I did say it was OK. Um you know, to try and shy away from that darkness that is now so present inside you, you know. Um, yeah, but I think it's very common, that kind of rape. And I think it's very common for people to wish it was more. I, I'm just speculating. I think it's probably quite common for women to wish it was more of a man jumps out of a bush kind of thing. Because, and this is going to sound really callous, but like those survivors are looked at differently, right? There, there was one woman who got followed on the bus. She's an amazing woman. I can't remember her name now, but she does a lot of restorative justice work here in Ireland. Anyway, she's really cool. And um, But she was followed off a bus. He dragged her into a bush. She didn't ever say exactly what happened, but she was obviously sexually assaulted, seriously sexually assaulted. And um, then she was on this TV show we have here called The Late Late Show, which is like a night, night chat joke thing. It's like a big deal. And um, she was on it and the standing ovation and everything. And it was just amazing. And I'm always thinking, like, if someone went, some people do go on that show and are interviewed and talk about their surviving their father abusing them. They don't get standing ovations. Right. And I'm not saying one is more worth standing. Up, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just always strikes me as so interesting that we see it's clean. It's pure. God, this, these are horrible words I'm saying. But. That's how it feels to me is like, God, I wish I could have been one of them. And then everyone would have known it was terrible and, you know, everyone would have looked after me and it wouldn't be this murky thing where I can't really remember what happened because I was so drunk, you know, and I talked to him afterwards and all. And like, I wouldn't have done that if I was raped, you know, all this shit. But that girl would be equally thinking it was my fault for not getting off the bus three steps, three stops earlier. It was my fault because I didn't ring my mom and dad on the way. Do you know what I mean? Like she would have her own version of blaming herself there's my postman sorry 
she'd have her own her own list of rules and regulations there to make it be her fault. No matter what way it happens to you, you're not going to feel, oh yeah, that was real bad. I was a victim of that. He's a rapist. That's probably not going to happen for you too quickly. But I think it's important how how we treat those narratives, right? Because you're completely right that that kind of this innocent woman they've decided a woman is innocent had done nothing wrong and it was a stranger and it was it was rape in the starkest most easily understandable of terms you know there's this great myth i think that you unburden yourself and it's it's revelatory and it's cleansing and it's cathartic but but not every kind of sexual assault is viewed or treated equally and that does have an impact upon survivors. For sure, it depends on who you're telling. And that's the tragedy is like, if you're a kid, teenager, whatever, you don't have life experience. I mean, obviously, especially if you're a kid, like, what are you going to do? But if you're not able to speak in a safe place, the safe person about what happened to you and have that received safely, um, that compounds the trauma. There's a heartbreaking bit in your book where you almost tell a teacher because a teacher says they noticed and and they take you in and they ask you, but then realise it becomes very apparent very quickly they don't want to know the answer. Yeah, and I, I, that part was really sad to write. And I had to change. I didn't want to change her name, but I had to. She was like, oh, do you have a minute to talk or whatever? And I was like, okay. And I met her in the library at whatever time she agreed, thinking we were going to be talking about what I was going to study in college or something. I would have been fifth year. And then she got all weird and the meeting was nothing to do with that. So I felt like an absolute idiot there with my notebook and all like ready to take notes or whatever. Like, bless me. Um, and then she said, whatever she said, I can't remember, like you being different and what's going on kind of thing. And your mom said you're being all different. And what's happening but it didn't feel very caring it felt quite judging and like cop on to yourself kind of conversation it wasn't like is everything okay it was more like what's wrong with you like stop doing whatever this is and then I did try to tell her and I said something happened and she goes something happened and I was like yeah, something happened and I could feel myself welling up I can't really remember the full picture of what happened and then she said something like will you tell your mother whatever happened and that was the end of that it's like Thanks. So that's how you handled potential disclosure of abuse. And this would have been 2001. That wasn't that long ago. And I'm sure it still is bad in most places. And there wasn't even really the opportunity to disclose to your friends because the, the other bit that stuck with me was when, you know, immediately afterwards, and I think you said to your mate on the bus, you know, I don't really like, I don't really like Peter. And your your mate said, well, why'd you go into, into the trees with him then? And I'm like, oh my God, this is what we we were internalizing and, and saying to each other. And like that shut me down completely. I still remember her face looking across, you know, the way to the cross me on the bus and her saying, why did you, and she was just asking, like, if you don't like him, why did you hang out with him then? Do you know, but it was the same thing of like, well, why didn't you report? Why didn't you tell someone? Why didn't you, da, da, da. it's the same shutting down. I was saying something potentially risky and she didn't want to know. She didn't say why, why, why do you not like him? It was just, why did you hang out with him then? Um, you know, I'm not blaming her or anything, you know, we were young, but like, there's the same thing of like, just, I don't want to know about it. 
Yeah. And that shut me down then completely about what happened. You talk about uh, an, an assault when you're 17, which is which is um, brutal in its ordinariness in that you're sat in a car, you're at a traffic light, a guy's selling magazines and leans through the window and you say, I don't have any money. And he assaults you through the car window and you say um and you say something with such clarity about this which is about why you know we don't say anything and you said if I did something I'd be an open wound they could do or say anything to me and it might hurt me more I imagined what they would say why didn't you lean on the horn why didn't you just close the window why didn't you shout for help your book is so brilliant at showing the 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 violence that is part of our lives as women for the length of our lives. The fact that whether it was this incident, whether it was the assault in the park, it remains the same. And does it actually reinforce it at that point when it happens again and you you feel that strongly? Yeah, and it's like oh, I'm I'm the I'm the per, kind of person that this thing this kind of stuff happens to. Because as much as everybody says, oh, talk about it and whatever, we're not, like I was saying a minute ago, like we're not, we're selling survivors. And also this goes for people who are experiencing depression, whatever, reach out, call someone, talk to a friend. It's like, but are we talking to the friends on how to respond? So we're not, like, we're just hoping for the best that like, that people will do the right thing or say the right thing or be able to have that stillness and quietness inside them that a survivor needs when they're disclosing. Um, We're just hoping, like we're not doing anything on that side of things. So that kind of frustrate, frustrates me and I'm like, yeah, and that thing of like, it's too risky and that shows you that it's trauma if you are questioning that. Because if someone came and robbed my car keys and ran off with them, I'd call the police or well, I probably didn't have a phone then, but I'd do something and I'd be angry and like I'd tell my family immediately, you know, uh, or if he robbed the car, obviously, or whatever it was, uh, or robbed my bag or whatever. But um, this was because it was sexual, it was immediately, immediately, you know, you don't. But also when you're 17 years old, who wants to go and talk to their parents about their sexual a sexuality or their a sexual thought a sexual thought you know what I mean like if you don't want to talk to your parents about sex you're hardly going to want to like tell them about um being sexually assaulted in a car and risk them blaming you judging you shaming you just in those you know well-intentioned not being mean you know like why didn't you ring me why didn't you call the police why, well where is he now let's go find him like you know it's all well-intentioned but it doesn't help so I was afraid of, yeah, basically being blamed and judged or, yeah, seeing that it was my fault somehow. And also, but like, it was so interesting after that happened, like nowhere did it cross my mind that that was a crime. Like I didn't, not once did it cross my mind that that was a crime that happened to me, Do you know? Even though on one level, I'm sure I knew that that was a crime, but like, I didn't even think about going to the police, not at all. And they could have easily caught him, like he was selling this particular magazine, like at this particular place. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it was really shocking. And it sees these, I mean, we say grey areas, but they feel like grey areas, but they're actually not a lot of the time, right? When you look at them in, in with a little bit of kindness for yourself and a little bit more understanding about the way male violence presents itself. So when when you were groomed by a man we'll call 
J and he just appeared in your phone. It wasn't he wasn't hanging around outside your school. It wasn't kind of any of those tropes we hear about how these men appear. And he was obviously a great deal older than you, I think in his mid-30s. And he made you this is how grooming works and and I hope people really listen to this part of the podcast because what's astonishing when I read this book is the groundwork he put in to make you complicit from the very first kind of moment you know he warned you not to seduce him with your sexy body he the the narrative from the very first day was you held the power you know, he was going to have to try and fight to not be kind of pulled in by you. And it's complicated, right? Because there's a one wo- young woman, you know, you have a certain power. It's not over men because he was the only one who truly had power in that situation. But it's complicated by the fact you're you're becoming a woman. Yeah, totally. And kind of, yeah, feeling a sense of power in your sexuality. A sense of like value, I think for me anyway, it was like a sense of being valued, but it was my sexuality was valued um, when it had been. So like I never got I never got to have a sexuality, really. Like my first experience of being a sexual being was like some man groping me on the train when I was 15. And then I got raped then when I was 16 and then this guy showed up. So it was it never really got a chance to do its own thing. Or kind of, you know, organically become its own thing. Um, it was always prescribed to me, like, or like it wasn't prescribed to me. It was like, it wasn't about me. It was about the men or man. It was like, that's my sexuality is whatever they want. That's kind of what happened. But this, it feeling valued felt pretty good to me because it had been so devalued by being raped and whatnot that, yeah, it felt, it did have a sense of power in it that, this guy wants me and that makes him weak somehow but he wasn't obviously weak at all and that's the you know danger in in rape culture right which is if you basically reduce women's value to how sexually attractive they are and how much men want them it's not that this is where we end up it's that's where women can only find their validation or girls can only find their validation. And we should be clear, I think, here, we're not talking about you as a woman. You were 17. You may have been just about over the age of consent, but A, you were being groomed and B, you were still, you were 17. You were not a woman. No, 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 no. Yeah, and I think that's kind of why we have this OnlyFans explosion and everything. It's just like continuing on this sense of like women kind of feeling, girls kind of feeling like that's where I have a sense of power. When in when it comes to how I relate to men in the world, that's where I feel a sense of power in a very powerless world, you know, despite how great everything is for women now, but still, still not the best. And um. This, these kind, this kind of sense of that's where my power is, but it's not power. They think they're subverting things, but they're not subverting anything. They're just replicating things. It doesn't make it any less objectifying if you're the one choosing to do that. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't. It's still, it's still objectifying. You know, it's still harmful. That's why we think it's harmful, but that's why we say catcalling and whatnot is harmful because it is. So is any objectifying. But anyway, I'm kind of going off on this tangent now. I'm sorry. No, no, because it's all. It's it's entirely all 
related and 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 you were just i suppose like in your other experiences you were blaming yourself from pretty much the get-go saying i could have just left i didn't even know i was blaming myself i was just going along with it you know but afterwards i was consciously blaming myself i suppose but in the time i i you know i didn't anything wrong with what was going on i mean i didn't tell anybody which is pretty big sign that on some level you do know something wrong is going on but at the same time i also don't tell friends and family about random one night stands i have either you know what i mean i'm not sharing that part of my life with people so like it kind of felt like that that and then i had a boyfriend as well like at some point during that and had him for two years and the meetings as well with this guy were very very limited so it was like very irregular um every now and then it wasn't all the time because i know when you read a book about this or someone tells you a story it kind of seems like it was like this constant thing it wasn't and for a lot of abuse survivors it is a constant thing it's the grandfather father whoever for me it was this guy was very removed out of my life and that made it easier to deal with in some way it made it easy not not deal with it made it easier for me to compartmentalize that's what i mean and be like but that's where i get a sense of self-worth is off this guy because he paid me that was the problem is that well the whole thing was a problem obviously but like when i was leaving his house the first time i met him he gave me two 50 pound notes and he said this real creepy thing he said here's some pocket money um and that was obviously gross but i didn't feel gross because i was 17 i met him when i I first started texting when i was 16 met him when i was 17 and i didn't think it was gross i thought it was great i thought i just got 100 quid for doing nothing really in that moment he had loads of things happened it's very complex in that moment like it was made me complicit in it and made me collude with him by taking the money i was colluding and complicit in my own abuse it was also a bribe to get me to come back it was also about my silence and the most crucial thing for those long lasting thing for me was that it was like here's how much you're worth you know you're worth 100 pounds which to me was loads of money you know so unconsciously it was like Hundred pounds is how much your sexual, how much you are worth, and that felt great. Like, so of course I wanted to have that feeling again, and keep being wanted, needed, valued, and have the tangible proof of it as well. Yeah, because if he hadn't paid me, I don't know if I would have seen him again. Like I might have, but I can't say where because I really didn't like him very much. I mean, there was nothing to like about him. And the stuff you were particularly uncomfortable with, you know, he took photos and and I know that was something you were massively uncomfortable with but the and you say in the book oh I didn't know how to say no but there's also a sense that you almost didn't know you could or that was it just didn't occur to you to be able to say no no it didn't occur to me that I could say no it was more like trying to get out of things um I didn't know I could say no at all because he was paying me so it was like when you're paying somebody to do something it immediately creates a power dynamic, obviously. Do you know what I mean? Obviously it does. Where you're now have to do what they say and or else you might not get the money, you know, and then I want the money. You know, this was all unconscious. I wasn't sitting around thinking about these things while this was happening. But it was absolutely like in the same prostitution, you know, um, later on was like, you can't say no, you can't. You can try and get out of things again or try and wheedle them into something else, but you can't be like, no, I don't fancy that no way they just do it anyway like that's why they're paying you they're not paying you to have autonomy they're paying you to say yes <laughs> like that's the point of paying like but people who automatically reach for why didn't you scream or say no or push him off or and there's what i think is really interesting is is that you you say you know that i think there was once or twice you mumbled that you didn't want to another time you i think you said no quite clearly but actually 
the really powerful stuff is when you talk about the other ways in which you told him no and the ways in which your body said no and you showed him no. Yeah, I was so uncomfortable so many times. I remember him snapping at me because he liked to put me in all these different positions and take photos and do stuff to me. And um snapping at me if I wasn't doing it right and clearly I wasn't comfortable you know or there was one memory I will never forget is when I was about 18 and he met me and we went to this hotel and we'd always meet in a hotel but this was the only time where he went with me up into the reception like usually he'd just give me a room number and I'd meet him there so I don't know what this was about but anyway I went in with him and then I hid in the bathroom he was texting me and I can't really remember what happened. I just remember being in the bathroom cubicle locked in thinking, well, he can't get me in here. Like if you're engaging with somebody in a sexual way, whatever that is, whatever mad ways that might be, like if somebody hides in the bathroom on you, like you know that they don't want to be there. You know, at the very least, taking away him being an abuser and a million years older than me and all the rest of it and all his grooming, if somebody hides in a bathroom, you know, they don't want to hang out with you in that way. So maybe just leave them alone. But he didn't because that obviously that wasn't his his agenda was to get me up into the hotel room. I don't really remember what happened after that. Later on, I'd cancelled loads like um, or I wouldn't show up and he'd be enraged. And then the more I did that, the more kind of confident I got in, in cancelling on him. So I was able to eventually get away from him. It's mad. It's just like it's when I think about it, I'm like, did that really happen? Did all that, was I really in that, in that toilet cubicle? Like, really? Like, do you ever, it's, like, it's just mad. You're like, did, did, did I make it up though? Like. Did a large part of it seem kind of okay? Because he didn't, he made a point, right, of not having sex with you. Yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. He didn't have sex with me. He never even took his clothes off. Um. So I was always naked and he was always fully clothed. But I could feel his heart on or whatever, you know, obviously. But like. Um, he never did anything with his own self um, in that way. And then the turning point for me at the end was when he emailed me. He used to send me these like, creepy little emails telling me what was going to happen the next time we met. And um, so he did. Uh, he touched me, you know, but he wouldn't take his dick out. He wrote me in his, one of his little creepy little like theatre directions, basically, of what was going to happen uh, or stage directions, whatever. He said, and then you'll do this and then I'll have sex with you. And I was like, no, that's never happened before. And that was a real strong, visceral no to that. The same thing with the camera and him. He had this whole tripod thing where he'd have a lead. So, you know, with the little clicker thing, so he could be in the photo and while taking, you know, the camera could be far away or whatever. And he did all that. Uh, he put photos on me on the internet. So he used to get them. This is before... Early on, he'd get them developed in a, you know, in a chemist or whatever back in the day and make me look at them. And then he would um, talk about how the chemist people now know what I look like and have seen me naked and all this kind of stuff. Humiliating was his main, main thing. He loved it. Um, and then the video thing was interesting because he took it, but hated it, hated the flash, the whole flash thing, the flash going off and everything. Like, it's where he was like a professional photographer, the way he carried on the room. Like, and I've seen the photos, like, he 100% did not. But I would hate it so much and just be frozen. And he never was like, obviously, because he's an abuser, he was not going to say, Is this okay with you? Do you mind if I take a photo? Like, obviously, he wasn't going to do that. The abusers do things where they just bring things in and they're just like, This is normal now, do you know? And you're just like, Oh, okay, this is normal. 
And if they, they can't leave a gap of reflection in the victim, they can't have you have a moment of reflection. They just want to be like, oh, today we're taking photos. You know, that's what we're doing. We're doing this today. I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And there's no question, you know, there's no like, um, would you mind getting on the bed? It's just like, I'm the bed, <laughs> do you know, like that kind of thing. One time I came out of the bathroom in the hotel room we were in and he was hiding this video camera and it was like before smartphones or whatever. I'm sure now it's what people can do is horrendous, but he had this video, big old video camera and he was hiding it. And um, that's when I said no. I just kept saying the word no. I don't know what the difference is between the video and the photo- photographs for me. But for the, video, the the fact he was hiding it, I don't know. I was just like, no. And then he made me sit in his lap, which was this creepy thing he made me do whenever I was annoyed or upset or whatever. I mean, my memory of that moment was that he didn't film me, but who knows? He, he probably, I mean, he probably did. You know, I was super naive thinking he would have turned it off just because I said no. This may, this may be hard to answer because, you know, it happened to you and, and not that you'll still be processing it, but I... I I don't know what you think, but I think trauma is a constant evolving thing that sits within you and it's not like you wake up one day and suddenly it's gone or it's resolved or anything like that. But what do you think the biggest misconceptions are around grooming particularly? Well, the first thing that comes into my mind, and this might be wrong, is like that the victim has something to do with it, that it's not a it's not a clear cut situation. You know, that's, that's the first thing that comes into mind is that people don't really understand. They don't get it. And it's like, they don't want to get it either because it makes them so uncomfortable that that kind of, it may, it's not that uncomfortable to think about monsters, you know, and victims and monsters, monsters jumping out of bushes or whatever it is. Um, that doesn't make us too comfort- too uncomfortable, I don't believe, because then we have black or white, right or wrong, good or bad. It's clear, defined. The brain can cope with it. Um, the emotions can cope with it. Oh, the poor victim. Oh, the horrible monster. Do you know, it's when things get blurred. It's like I read this, this quote from this girl I follow on Twitter. She's a sex trade survivor. And she said, there are beautiful people on both sides of the exchange. And I was like, God, that's generous. Like, that's not a beautiful thing to say. There are beautiful people on both sides of the exchange. And I agree with her. There are. And it's really hard. When I was writing the book, I found it very difficult to write about the many pay for sex because I didn't want to demonize them all. But I also didn't want to let them off the hook. I wanted to show compassion because I have compassion for every single human on the planet, regardless of even Donald Trump, right? Regardless of whatever, because they're a human being. Having compassion doesn't mean that I forgive them. It doesn't mean I'm letting them off the hook. But it's really hard to explain that in words. Like, I want to hold the men accountable. I understand they're human beings. I understand, like this girl said, there's beautiful people on both sides, you know, including the men, right? Um, Yeah, to humanize the men without being like, oh, the poor things hurt people, hurt people, you know, this kind of bullshit. Like, that's not what I was not getting at that. So that's why I wrote lines like um I some of them were a laugh. I liked some of them. Some were super friendly, some were super friendly and super violent. Like the old man, super friendly, super violent. I wanted to make sure that like it was a spectrum that it's complex. It's not neither black nor white, but people don't like that, right? We like to have it this way or that way. So when you bring in I was groomed, it's like, well that's neither of those things then. How was he to know? You were 17, you were at legal age. Why did you do that? You know, we don't we don't want to be in the murk of we don't want to be curious. We want to be no, we don't want to know the facts. This was bad. This was this person's good. This person's bad. We don't want to have to be curious then because that takes effort. You know, that 
relationship well I, I use the word relationship as in you and another human being having contact with each other but that's that's about as much as it covers because um and and that we haven't even covered you know some of the the stuff about he had an obsession with school uniforms always wanted you to plait your hair you know there were there were um many things about this guy that are incredibly alarming but he also introduced you to somebody else for the first time which was the man I think you just mentioned a much older man who was in his 60s and that was kind of the moment really where you were suddenly I've been paid for sex in a in a was it a more explicit way or a more was it because he was a stranger and and you knew Jay yeah yeah exactly yeah this ongoing relationship again you know what I mean <laughs> me and Bert Thomas uh with this guy Jay your man told me your man sorry is like Irish slang for the man um he told me to be go meet this old man in this hotel at a certain time that he'd give me a certain amount of money like all this kind of stuff so I was like okay because I was just doing whatever he wanted and exactly that it was it was a job for a certain amount of time, for a certain amount of money. And it wasn't like that with the original abuser guy. With the original abuser guy, it was much more unclear and, and vague and very different. So I went out and met this old man. He was appalling. He was a really friendly little old man, like with white hair. He was super violent and he made me wear these certain clothes. It wasn't a school uniform, thank God. But anyway, um, and he just really assaulted me. It was really terrible. It was really, really bad. I can't even explain. I remember lying there. And he was on a wank and I couldn't see him, thank God. It feels to me like that moment is a real catalyst for me of like, I couldn't, not like, oh, this is terrible and I should get away from this situation forever. It was like, actually, I can endure this, you know, <laughs> like because the neural pathways seek familiarity, right? So it's going to go, oh, let's continue down this road, you know, that is so familiar as opposed to maybe I shouldn't. If I had not had any of those previous experiences and then for some reason was somehow in this, I would 100% be like, what the hell is going on? You to get out of this room immediately. Like, how did I end up here? You know, but because I had this enduring, ongoing thing, it was just like, well, this is familiar and this is this is normal. So it feels to me like that's that was the moment where I something clicked inside me of like, you can you can actually do this and you're strong enough, you know, to do this. And um, you can endure this level of violence as well, like. Well, yeah, the, the brutality feels familiar. And I don't know if comforting's the right word, but there's something, the familiarity of it offers something that I can't quite find a word for. And it's a space you recognise and you can own in some way, you know, and that's the thing. I can endure this. I, I have value here. I can endure more than you may even believe that yeah. I can. And I'm I'm tough enough to do this you know and it's familiar and if something is familiar we're drawn to that even if you know it's like people lose their minds after they win the lotto you know like people lose their insane like they lose their minds have nervous breakdowns and stuff because it's it's a good change but it's so so unfamiliar that anyway um but it, it's like that you're you're drawn to the familiar um even if the familiar is is not a good thing for us the draw the draw towards it is going to be very strong and if we're not aware which most of us are not, of what's happening for us at any given moment, we're going to just follow that. And in your early 20s, you you wrote, you described it as pseudo-rape, right, which is these experiences, and, and you write about a guy, a stranger, who seems to come 
to be coming to help you when you've had a breakup, you're being sick, you've, you've, you know, you're in a state thinking he's never going to want anything from me. He's just being kind to me and he assaulted you. And, and then, and there was a guy at college as well. He also assaulted you and he was the kind of good guy, the nice guy, the popular guy, you know, everybody liked him. Um, later turned out to be a massive perpetrator of repeated uh, sexual violence, which was the only thing in the book that didn't surprise me. I thought it was really important you wrote about these incidents because for anybody who would like to try and frame your story as being extreme in some way and, and you know, this rare thing, the, the, the other incidents you write about, I mean are so similar to other guests who've been on this podcast. And, you know, we talk as women, we share our experiences. We've all been in that bedroom waking up thinking, who's this guy next to me? And your experience encompasses both of those. I mean, I say both, but there's more than two two elements of sexual assault, but sexual violence in, in so many of its forms. Um. And but were you almost still, I suppose, ranking those experiences alongside the quote unquote more extreme ones you'd endured? So those experiences, because it was the backdrop was so mental, those experiences kind of didn't even really touch off me till way later when I was like, oh, and those things were real bad as well. Um, and I did as well, didn't comprehend them as being violent or assault or anything like that. I remember being very angry with the guy in the apartment um, and really hating him and really knowing he did something really bad. It was like when I was on the train when I was 15 and a guy groped me, an old man, like rubbed up and down my side for the whole way into town, into the city. And when I was getting off, I kind of looked at him and he looked at me and kind of scuttled away. And I really hated him. And I was really like angry with him and really upset. But I didn't know why, you know, I, I was like, I couldn't say to you, oh, I've just been assaulted by this creep, you know, and that's a bad thing. And that's why, you know, I was just feeling all these feelings, you know, and it was the same with these experiences in college. And also it was so normal in college. There was one guy who was really well known for being an, a, a, like assaulting women when they were asleep or when he was drunk. He grope women just overtly. And um, it was like a joke that that he did that, you know what I mean? It was a joke if he did it to you. It was like, oh, I won't say his name, but it was like, oh, there he goes again, you know? Yeah, mad, mad things. But I, I, I didn't particularly want to write about that aspect or the aspects around me having sex with lots of people and stuff because I didn't want to write it in a way that it might be construed as an, oh, and here's all the shameful things I did because I was living out of trauma. Like, I don't care about all that sleeping around and stuff. Like, I'm quite okay with that. No, but they're different things and they are different things, right? So, so they're, they're, they're assaults and, and, and your con- truly consensual sex life is your business, right? I mean, it's all your business. It is all your business, but... That is a very different thing, isn't it? And I think I think that's part of the job we always individually have to do, which is I think I've conflated stuff in the past of being, because it feels like a spectrum, sometimes sex ends up on that spectrum as well, even if it's consensual sex. Yeah, I didn't really want to write about that, the assault or my college life so much. It felt a bit too... I don't know what, it felt a bit too much or too giving of myself or something. 
Um, I don't know why, but it just did. It felt like because college life to me when I was studying art was very precious to me and I didn't really want to bring it in. And this was all going on as well, but very sporadically in the background. And it felt like I was tainting that time in my life that was so brilliant with this stuff. So I didn't really want to bring them together. I think I even write that in the book that I don't want to bring in. I don't want to ruin my NCAD days with like this stuff. But it was what it was. And um, it was happening in and out of each other. And that is that thing of integrating lives, you know, that it's not just one thing or another, that it's a mix of everything. Because that's the danger, right, is and is when we tell our stories, we become only our stories. Our entire experience gets reduced down to that. Um, but you do write incredibly well on the impact of sexual violence and of trauma before you know we started recording this i i told you that i've never read anyone write about disassociation so accurately how you know your body might still be on this earth but the rest of you is nowhere to be seen and and the how the acts of violence can carve you out of the world at least momentarily if if not permanently how have you I suppose where does that impact sit for you now and how you think that works and um what you think resolution might be if there is such a thing and I suppose what recovery means to you because everybody's different and everyone has their own story and their own experience of trauma the impact of it it's hard to generalize but for me, um, it's about connection. So if you think the antithesis of the trauma is immediate disconnection from us to us, you know, that's why we split. We call it splitting or there's like two parts. We've got the part that experienced the abuse and then we've got the part that's getting on with normal life every day and being a happy whatever prison they are. And then we've got the dissociated part or whatever. There's all these different parts and everything splits and becomes fragmented when we get traumatized inside us. So by connecting safely in the world, like we were speaking about a little bit earlier with safe people and safe communities and safe whatever, safe as in non-judging, non-narcissistic, having really healthy, good connections in your life is the antithesis of trauma because it's doing the very opposite. However, for a traumatized person, it can be very, very difficult to maintain healthy connections with other people. And because of our massive lack, even though trauma's bandied around like nobody's business at the moment <laughs> it's so annoying um, it's it's very hard for because of the dearth of awareness of what trauma actually looks like because all we get is films tvs whatever and um, the other people don't recognize it necessarily and don't see it that way they oftentimes traumatize people and you know especially with complex trauma so developmental trauma trauma that happens to us when we're kids or it's relational trauma, very young, even if it's not sexual abuse, whatever it might be, um, means that because of how our how we have to adapt to survive the trauma, it looks like personality to people who don't know any better. So they're like, oh, that's just how me is. Me is very sensitive. Do you know what I mean? Instead of like, maybe I'll ask me if she's all right. <laughs> Do you know? They'd be like, oh, that's me. She's just whatever, you know, I don't know. Or gosh, isn't she very controlling or whatever you know very difficult person a difficult person is a really traumatized person but that's like i don't know how we solve that problem 
Um, but I do know that connection, no matter if I'm finding it, and connect, human relationships are the hardest part of my life. I, I never know what's going on with them. I never know if I'm safe or not. I never know if I can trust somebody or not. This goes for men and women. Trust is like massively ruptured inside me. So my job for me is to connect with me and acknowledge what's going on. Remember I was saying to you earlier, wouldn't it be great if my brothers-in-law could just say, oh, I heard about your book, well done. Like that's, that's part of the cure is that things like that, honesty, um, acknowledging, not being afraid to say what's going on. Even if it's just, are you all right? You left early, you know, or whatever. Just normal stuff, you know. <laughs> but it's that like, that I connect with me. So when one of my brothers-in-law was presented with the opportunity to say something to me about my book and didn't, I felt shame and I felt like, oh, fuck, now I shouldn't have done whatever I'd done to try and lure him into saying something um, or whatever it is, you know, and I felt shame and I felt like outside of things again and I felt outside of the family system again. Um, I felt othered again because it was just this shutdown happened and I felt like oh, I'm the problem again and there's nothing wrong with me. You know, this is all feelings. I'm not thinking about this or like writing stories in my head. These are feelings, sensations. This is called re-traumatization, right? So because I'm not going to get the connection of him, clearly, I have to connect with me and be like, that was a tough night. <laughs> you know, you really tried hard there to connect with him on that. And he's not able. He's inadequate in that way. And that's really shitty for you that you have that person in your life. who's not able just to say to you fair play. Anymore. That's really hard for you. I'm so sorry. Right. To say it to myself. And then I'll talk to my therapist or whatever, give out about it to my friends or whatever. But like. Do you know that first and foremost, I'm there not blaming myself or saying, well, I shouldn't have brought it up or I shouldn't have said anything or like, you know, oh, I wish I hadn't written the fucking thing. So since I've come out, I've been thinking so many times, God, if I hadn't written the book, all of these relational problems wouldn't have, wouldn't be a thing. Everything would just be status quo like it was before. Because it's been very challenging without getting into things like it's been really, really challenging with certain people in my life and really sad, really heartbreaking. And even though none of it's my fault and whatever, it still feels like, well, if I hadn't written the book, you know, this wouldn't happen. But basically, yeah, I think connection, connection with ourselves and then to build our trust with ourselves that I have my own back. No matter if someone's pricked me about my book or someone won't acknowledge something or if I go public on my childhood sexual abuse and the neighbor doesn't want to look me in the, face, in the eye, do you know that like I'm OK with me in that? I'm not going to blame myself. I'm not going to try and people please the neighbor to get them to like me, whatever. Do you know, I'm, I'm going to look after me in it. If I remember rightly, the book is dedicated to the truth tellers. And there is something, I'm a great believer in, in the radical nature of truth, not sanitized truth, not palatable truth, not truth that is convenient or comfortable, but the radical nature of actual truth. And I think that's what your book offers. And I think that's what we need more of because the more we hide and the more we keep it a secret and the shame builds and we're told you can only speak about it in this kind of language, in this kind of circumstance, in this, you know, we're told not to be hostile. We're told to be polite. We're told to be, make sure you always say not all men in case the men think you mean not, in case the men think you mean all men, when actually what we mean is all men are capable. Therefore, how am I meant to know which of you? Because there's one thing demolishing rape myths directly and there's another thing which is unpicking the culture that I think still silences 
survivors and specifically silences women. Yeah, absolutely. The culture, culture like means like attitudes and beliefs in a group, whatever the group might be. And that's exactly correct. Like to, but it's so difficult because let's say a family culture, you know, how are you going to unpick that as the survivor? You have to be made of steel to be able to do that because you're going to get rejected. The family system wants to maintain the family system. It doesn't want to look at itself. It doesn't want things to change. Uh, group and French groups don't want things to change. They don't want whatever I have friends who won't read my book. You know, friends, good friends won't read it. And they won't even tell me like, it's too much for me to read or I'm going to read it later. They just will not mention it to me. It's so weird. They would come to my book launch and stuff, but like it's surface, right? Surface level, like, right? So you're it's going mad having this book out because you're kind of confronted with like, you're kind of confronted with the culture, right? Over and over again in all the different ways. Explicit trolls online calling me horrible names and saying gross things to me, which is fine. Or, you know, friends that haven't read your book. Like, it's it's so interesting to see, like, it's interesting and also quite annoying sometimes um, to experience it, you know, and always trying to stay close to myself and stay, like, okay with me throughout the thing because it's so easy to take on how people are responding to you. That was Mia's story. Please, 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 if you have made it to the end of this, which I sincerely hope you have, and you enjoyed listening to Mia, maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, but you know, you found what she had to say compelling, um, which I know I certainly did, then please do go and buy her book. It's out in hardback and paperback. It's called Any Girl, A Memoir of Surviving Prostitution in Ireland and Mia can they find you on the internet only if there's no trolling obviously <laughs> yeah of course um Instagram is Mia Christina Graham and Twitter is Mia Christina underscore brilliant and thank you so much Mia for joining us and for speaking so brilliantly about your experiences um but about male violence and how it impacts all of us So that was Mia's story. I think it's a really important story. I mean, every single one is, but it tackles some areas of sexual violence that I think we find a bit more challenging, you know, grooming and prostitution and sexual exploitation and subjects that I think we're probably not as knowledgeable about or as comfortable with and we should probably ask ourselves why but I do think these are key things to be talking about and I definitely think facts and stats and context and having a bit more understanding about it can only help us have these conversations so we'll have um, some kind of general stats particularly around women in Ireland um, and sexual assault and then I do want to get into those teenage years what violence can look like in those ages but then also talk a little bit around grooming and around prostitution Um, So bear with me and I will link to all the sources of this information as usual in the show notes and in the social media post as well. So one in four women in Ireland have experienced physical and or sexual violence. It's one in five who've been raped 
and more than half, 52%, have experienced some form of sexual violence. 78% of Irish adults who have experienced sexual violence know the perpetrator. Now, there were some interesting statistics around um, those teenagers, which I wanted to share. This is from Rape Crisis Network Ireland. Now, they basically compiled this by taking data from a sample of six rape crisis centres, putting it in a data system, and this sample, um, I think, was basically looking at a similar pattern across Ireland, but it's all the data is from people who engaged with their helpline services in 2020, just so you understand the context of these numbers. So 33% of those whose abuse began between the ages of 13 and 17, and let's not you know, forget that the grooming incidents with, with Mia, she was 16 and 17 think 17 when she met him for the first time so 33 percent of those disclosed that the sexual violence was perpetrated over a number of years the vast majority of adults disclosed that the abuse that had been perpetrated for years was by their partner or an ex-partner survivors who were teenagers so specifically aged between 13 and 17 when the sexual violence began predominantly disclosed that they were subjected to additional emotional and or psychological abuse 65 percent of survivors didn't report to a formal authority and then let's talk about grooming and i think it's important we talk about kind of legal definitions right so when she was 17 mia you know may have been over the age of consent which is 16 but still as somebody who was under 18 she was still a child and these numbers are from the nspcc who are obviously uk based um so in the last six years almost thirty-four thousand online grooming crimes against children were recorded last year 2022 to 23 6,350 sexual communication with the child offences were recorded. That's an 82% increase since 2017-18 when the offence came into force. When the gender's known, 83% of online grooming offences are against girls. So I want to talk a little bit about prostitution specifically, and I will be using the word prostitution. So I did refer a couple of times to sex work in my chat with Mia, and I only kind of realised towards the very end of it that she was more comfortable with prostitution. This is her story, and so that's the term I'm going to be using here. So there's an estimated 1,000 women in prostitution in Ireland, A 2019 government commissioned report showed that more than one in 10 British men say they are paid for sex. Irishman is one in 15. There are approximately 72,800 sex workers in the UK and 88% of them are women. The average age of entry into prostitution is 19 for outdoor workers and 23 for indoor. There's actually little research on uh, the men who buy sex as opposed to the women who sell it which I mean you could argue is part of the problem right 
I did find a report and some research from 2009, which is from an organisation called EVE, and it was formerly EVE's Exploited Voices Now Educating. These um, interviewed around 100 men. So this report found the more accepting men were of prostitution, the men they surveyed, the more likely they were to also accept cultural myths about rape, such as women say no, but they really mean yes. 24% said that the concept of rape simply does not apply to women in prostitution. 27% of the interviewees explained that once he pays, he's entitled to engage in any act he chooses with the woman he buys. I mean... That's just a few kind of top line numbers. And I I kind of laugh in a dark, macabre way because it is horrifying, but also deeply unsurprising. And if you do need support or you need help or you need advice on anything we've talked about today, then on grooming specifically, you can call Stop It Now. People living in the UK and Ireland can call for free on 0808 1900. You can call the NSPCC for information and advice on 0808 800 5000 or email help at nspcc.org.uk. In our pinned post and in the show notes, we will put our more general organizations and helplines for sexual violence um and if there's anybody you'd like to add to those or you'd like us to to um recommend as well please do drop us a line if you want to talk about telling your story on why didn't you please email why didn't you pod at gmail.com it is only me terry who has access to that inbox your privacy is completely guaranteed just pop me a line and I can come back to you and we've been going a few weeks now if you like what we're doing or you think it's helpful or useful or hopefully contributing to a conversation please do consider leaving us a review and some stars maybe five of them um really appreciate the support I feel this community forming and I feel this sense of us standing shoulder to shoulder, a link to another story, to another story, and we're in it together. And I hope you feel that as well and I hope you start to feel that if you don't so far. But that's only because of the honesty and bravery and candour of the women I've spoken to so far and the support of the brilliant women and men who listen to this podcast and want to know more and want to know the truth so that we can be honest and confront and challenge but hopefully make the world a bit better so that in 30 years things aren't somehow even worse and it's a small corner of the podcast world the internet that we sit in here together but I'm really happy to be here with you 
I feel sad at these stories, but I feel a strength at these stories, at how we're lifting our voices and using them. And it makes me feel incredibly proud and incredibly moved and even a little bit hopeful. So thank you. That was Mia's story. Next week, we'll have another story, a real story of a survivor. See you next week.